Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Brian Wilson and host Michael Lerner. Brian Wilson, welcome to the new school. Thank you very much. It's great to be with you. Brian, you are uh, the author of a new uh, biography of John E. Fetzer called John E. Fetzer and the Quest for the New Age. Um, John Fetzer uh, was the founder of the Fetzer Institute in Kalamazoo, Michigan, which is a very extraordinary foundation that I've uh, been in touch with for a long time uh, that works on uh, mind, body, spirit matters, uh, fetzer.org, the website has an image of uh, some people holding hands and uh, the lead little clip on the website says, love is our unlimited resource. So that just gives you a a sense uh, of what the what the Fetzer Institute is about. And um, you you are uh, to me an extremely interesting a person, you're a professor of American religious history in the Department of Comparative Religion at Western Michigan University, and the author of Dr. John Harvey Kellogg and the Religion of Biologic Living, and also of Yankees in Michigan. Um, and I noticed uh, also that some of your colleagues there, um, uh, such as uh, Arthur Vers Lewis, is that how he pronounces his name? actually at uh, Michigan State University. Oh, right. Okay. He's at Michigan State University and uh, the author of American Gurus, Magic and Mysticism and other books. Yes. So <clears throat> it seems to me as though you are part of a, a community of uh, religious uh, history scholars uh, and your interests overlap with those of a number of your colleagues. Is that just trying to situate you before we get into John Fetzer's. Is that an accurate description? Yes, it is. Um, the interest in new religious movements has really blossomed uh, in the field of comparative religion, or as it's usually known, religious studies, um, over the last 20 years. And it really began with um, Gordon Melton, who was a professor uh, at UC Santa Barbara, and I had the privilege to cross paths with him when I was doing my doctoral work there. And that really kind of got me interested in new religious movements in the United States. So there's really a a cadre of scholars out there working on new religious movements very seriously. And um, there's just a lot of great work. And you mentioned Arthur Versluis, who's been doing really fantastic work on Western esotericism, uh, primarily in the United States. And his latest book really takes it up to the 21st century. So um, yeah, there's there's a lot of good scholarship out there. Well, it's a fascinating field to me, and one of the things that interested me most about your biography of John Fetzer is your seemingly, um, I'll, I'll em- emphasize seemingly, uh, effortless uh, fluency in the many uh, religious, mystical, and spiritual movements that fascinated him. And I wanted to ask you, um, did you have to do all that research from scratch, or were you conversant with a lot of the 
arenas in which uh, John Fetzer uh, moved uh, before you started the biography? Well, it's kind of half and half because there were some traditions like theosophy that I actually had done quite a bit of research on, quite a bit of reading about. Um, but then there are other things, for example, uh, his interest in channeling, um, which I really didn't have a background in. So, for example, channel texts like the Urantia book and uh, A Course in Miracles, these were new things for me. So one of the joys of the project was uh, I got to get really in-depth with uh, some of these traditions that I was already aware of and learned a whole lot about uh, uh, just a wide variety of things that John Fetzer was interested in. I want to ask you a, a personal question, and I'm equally willing to be forthcoming myself. I'll start with myself. I have a, a strong interest in um, religious, spiritual, esoteric, and mystical traditions. I've had it for a long time. And so uh, much of the material that you cover on Fetzer is familiar to me to differing degrees. Um, and, and personally, uh, I must say that, that I sort of think of myself as a, a pragmatic mystic um, in the sense that um, I think I've seen enough from um, 75 years on this planet and from 30 years and more of working with people with cancer and being interested in these fields of esotericism and mysticism that I, I think there's more to the universe than the materialist worldview uh, suggests. And I guess I'm asking you, because you're such a meticulous historian that your own view, at least I didn't see it in the book, uh, has, uh, is, is not apparent to me. Uh, do you write this from a sort of agnostic materialist point of view, or do you yourself have an interest in mystical and esoteric traditions um, in your own life? Well, that's, a, that's an interesting question, because um, I kind of describe myself as an agnostic seeker. So I wouldn't characterize myself as a materialist, um, but I'm also somebody who's um, you know, still investigating these things. And um, I have a real interest in kind of the spiritual side of life and, and esoteric movements and metaphysical movements, uh, but I haven't been completely convinced at this point. But one of the wonderful things about being a professor of comparative religion is I get to teach about these things and get to explore them. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, I'm still, I guess, uh, on that journey. Now, where I'll wind up and what my ultimate convictions will be, I, I don't really know at this point. Mm -hmm. So I find it actually very comfortable to be in this position of, of having these interests, being drawn to these uh, spiritual subjects, but at the same time keeping a kind of critical distance from them. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things I really tried to do in the book was to keep my own kind of personal spirituality out of it and be as descriptive as possible of John Fetzer's. So the fact that you didn't find me in the book uh, is a real compliment because that was something I was really trying to do. Yeah, I think you did an excellent job of that. Um, I'm looking at page 47 of the book um, where um, uh, you are describing one of the areas of interest that uh, Fetzer had during his early sojourns at Camp Chesterfield, uh, which had a spiritual uh, worldview. Uh, and um, the creed uh, 
I'm reading part of it, essentially simplified the metaphysical and theological concepts of Swedenborg and Davis into a form that easily explained the rudiments of spiritualism as a religion. Mm -hmm. Do you have a copy of the book with you? I, I don't, actually. All right. I don't have well, I'll just, I'll just read here. The nine principles, just very interesting. One, we believe in infinite intelligence. Two, we believe that the phenomena of nature, both physical and spiritual, are the expression of infinite intelligence. Three, we affirm that a correct understanding of such expression and living in accordance therewith constitute true religion. Four, we affirm that the existence and personal identity of the individual continue after the challenge called death. Five, we affirm that communication with the so-called dead is a fact, scientifically proven by phenomena of spiritualism. Six, we believe that the highest morality is contained in the golden rule. Whatsoever ye should, that others should do unto you, do ye also unto them. Seven, we affirm the moral responsibility of individuals and that we make our own happiness or unhappiness as we obey or disobey nature's physical and spiritual laws. Eight, we affirm that the doorway to reformation is never closed against any soul here or her hereafter. And nine, we affirm that the precepts of prophecy and healing contained in all sacred texts are divine attributes proven through mediumship. I, I thought that was a quite... Um, uh, clear and comprehensive statement of, um, of some of the principles John Fetzer was uh, intuitively drawn to. Yes, especially, I, I think, the monistic worldview that is expressed there um, really summed up an, uh, a conception of the world, uh, the universe, that he had um, going all the way back to the 1930s when he first encountered um, spiritualism, uh, just after he left Seventh-day Adventism. And that's a conviction I think stayed with him throughout his life. And part of that I think is due to the fact of uh, his early um, experiences with radio. And he was just absolutely fascinated with the idea that these energies were flying around. That you could actually create technologies to tune into them. And so I think very early as a, as a child, when he was experimenting with these things as a teenager, um, he came to the conviction that spiritual and physical energies are somehow interconnected, and so there's a kind of oneness to the universe. And so even though at this point he was still uh, a committed Christian, and uh, he, he became a Seventh-day Adventist as a teenager, uh, I think this idea was in the back of his mind and probably was one of the reasons why he didn't find Adventism uh, as spiritually fulfilling as uh, he might have hoped and why he ultimately left the tradition. So I think that's the key to understanding John Fetzer's worldview, this, this monistic idea. And then there's another uh, idea in there that is quite strongly expressed, and that's the idea of perennialism, that the world's religions really contain kernels of these ideas. And so all traditions have their truths, um, and it's up to the, the seeker to basically um, explore these traditions, take them seriously, respect them, and take out the ideas that are useful for him or her. You know, that's so interesting that you mention the perennialism, or what's also called the perennial philosophy, which, as you know, goes back to uh, the great uh, Jewish heretical thinker Leibniz, among others, and... Mm -hmm. 
uh, and uh, Aldous Huxley uh, wrote a, a great book at the end of World War II called The Perennial Philosophy, which reprised this. Um, essentially, as, as you are well aware, some version that truth is one, paths are many, and that there is a, uh, a, a unity um, at the heart of all the great religious and spiritual traditions. And it, it's interesting to me because um, I actually believed that that was factually true uh, up until a couple of years ago when I was uh, told by um, a wonderful professor of religious history and close friend, Mary Evelyn Tucker, um, who, who said to me, no, that's actually not true. It's not true of Confucianism, and it's not true of a number of other religions, and um, it might be true of the Abrahamic traditions, uh, but it isn't broadly true. And um, also another great sociologist of religion at Berkeley that I interviewed um, also just sort of disdain, disdainfully dismissed uh, the perennial philosophy as, uh, as factually inaccurate. And it was interesting to me because even though these two great scholars were telling me that it wasn't true, uh, I think there's, I don't know what it is, enough of the mystical romantic in me or enough of something that despite their dismissal, when I read the Confucian tradition and I read some of the uh, other traditions, I still sense um, that uh, uh, perennial theme in some way. And I'm just curious, since you're also a, a professor of uh, religious history, um, how do you hold uh, the perennial philosophy? Do you think that uh, it can be easily dismissed based just on uh, historical religious facts, or do you think it's not as easy as that? Well, my, my personal feeling is it's not as easy to dismiss, um, because when these various traditions basically are translated across cultures, um, they find people who uh, are fascinated by them and who are drawn by them. And I think there's something in them more than just simply the concepts and ideas. And I think that's the key, the, it's the experiential component of these traditions that draw people. And that, I think, is the core to this kind of perennialist idea. Now, um, I'm mindful of the fact that it's very easy, especially in translation, to distort religious traditions or to ignore the, the details that don't quite fit. Um, so I understand why a, a number of scholars of religion these days dismiss the perennial tradition as a, a construct or a romantic construct of the early 20th or late 19th century. But on the other hand, I think there's a psychological fact, and that is these traditions do translate, and they do fascinate. And I think it's in that that we can actually make a pretty good case for the reality of a perennial tradition. That and the fact that we're all human beings. And I think, you know, we're all material beings, but I think we're all spiritual beings. And I think this is the thing that also connects us as well. Would it be fair, I'm, I'm, I'm truly not at all sure about this, but would it be fair to identify the perennial tradition with the uh, Hindu tradition of non-dualistic uh, religion or philosophy? Um, well, I think it's, it's, it's easy. Um, uh, once you take a kind of monistic approach to the universe, 
then it's easy to interpret away the differences in traditions, especially in terms of cosmologies. Um, so, yes, uh, I, it, it, when we get down to the details, um, I think there are major differences. Uh, but it seems like the, the kind of key ideas, and again, I keep coming back to this idea of, of the kind of psychology of translation across cultures, and that, I think, is, is really gives you kind of the kernel or core of whatever, you know, universal tradition there is. Yes. The, the, um, I mean, this, this is a subject of deep fascination to me. One, one way I think about the distinction between what you're calling the details, which differ from religion to religion, and, and, and the question of whether there's a core truth, uh, I follow... Um, uh, many uh, spiritual teachers um, in thinking that there's a fundamental difference between the esoteric and the exoteric version of all religions. And clearly, that at the exoteric level, uh, the sort of everyday religion or the rules and, you know, moral philosophies and, um, and theories and dogmas, uh, religions differ enormously. The question is whether at the esoteric level, um, they come together. I mean, is that a fair statement of where they either do or don't come together? It clearly isn't at the exoteric level. So if they do, it must be at the, the mystical level. And, and those who believe this believe that, some, that there's one light and that it then comes down and is refracted in different religious and spiritual traditions in different ways according to the needs and beliefs of the particular culture that it enters. And then uh, those beliefs create the exoteric shell, whereas the esoteric mystical truth is actually identical. Uh, so is, is that a kind of a fair reframing of what you were talking about? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Um, all traditions are basically um, what? shaped by the kind of social conditions in which they find themselves. And, of course, human beings have this propensity to want to divide ourselves into different groups and to differentiate between this group and that group. So I think it's very easy to take uh, religious teachings and to basically form them in a way that it creates a, an us or them. And so the differences between traditions, I think, are in part due to this kind of human propensity to create groups. And I think you're right that the, the mystical insights uh, that the exoteric traditions are based on um, do add some kind of uh, universality to them. The problem is, of course, it's experiential. And it's, it's impossible, I imagine, to prove. I've never had a mystical experience myself, unfortunately. But it's only possible to prove this <clears throat> based on your own personal uh, mystical experiences, and so the mystics seem to claim that uh, the insight that comes through that experience is a unifying one, one that does seem to signal a kind of universal tradition. Mm -hmm. Well, this has been a wonderful way to start the conversation because uh, we move directly into <laughs> the, the parts that uh, in some ways interest me the most, but Let's go back to the subject of your biography, Johnny Fetzer, uh, and the quest for the new age, um, uh, your new biography of this extraordinary man uh, who founded the Fetzer Institute, which is a 
a very significant force in American philanthropy. Who was John Fetzer? Well, John Fetzer was a, a product of the Midwest. Uh, he lived from 1901 to 1991, almost made it to his 90th birthday, not quite. Uh, so his life really spans the 20th century. And in terms of why he's well-known in the Midwest, it's because uh, he founded one of the first radio stations uh, in southwest Michigan, a commercial radio station, WKZO, which is still on the air today. And he managed to basically parlay that single station into uh, a network of stations, of radio stations. He got into FM and then into television and then later into cable. Uh, and he made himself extremely wealthy based on his business success. And in Michigan, he's best known because uh, in the 1950s, uh, he bought the Detroit Tigers baseball team. And so for years, for decades, he was the owner of the Detroit Tigers. Um, so people in Michigan who's, who know the Fetzer name, other than those who know it because of the Institute, know it because of the Detroit Tigers. So to sum up his kind of uh, um, exterior life, he was an extraordinarily successful businessman. And in his interior life, which is a large part of your focus, um, in fact, it's the principal focus, how would you describe his internal spiritual journey? Well, it's interesting because um, I think he always had this uh, very strong kind of spiritual interest in his life. And it developed uh, as a child within a Christian context. And uh, he was baptized a Methodist and went to Sunday school. And one of his, his only mystical experiences during his life was actually an experience of Jesus. He had an experience of, of, of meeting Jesus in an elevator, which is kind of an interesting story. He was in a, um, a, a department store in a small town in Indiana, and he was playing around in the elevator one day, and he got into trouble. And all of a sudden, he looked up and he saw a vision of Jesus. And Jesus basically looked down and said, I'll never let go of you. And this was a tremendously formative experience in his life. And then later on, as a teen, uh, after World War I, he uh, contracted the Spanish flu. And his family really despaired of his life. Um, in fact, the family physician was just about ready to write him off. And Fetzer relates that he made uh, a deal with God that if he um, survived the flu, that he would ultimately devote his life to um, service. And he fulfilled that uh, um, later in life when he founded the Fetzer Institute. Um, he went through, he, was a, he, was, he had a, a really interesting spiritual evolution because uh, from this early Christian background, uh, and again, he, he uh, joined the Seventh-day Adventist Church. His mother converted to Seventh-day Adventism when he was a teenager. And he spent years as a, as a fervent Adventist and eventually uh, went to an Adventist college, the Emanuel Missionary College. But at the end of his 20s, uh, he found this uh, spiritually stifling. So he left the church, and that was a big struggle for him and a very momentous decision. And a few years later, uh, he made a trip down to Camp Chesterfield, which is the spiritualist camp in Indiana. And that's where he really came into contact with esoteric and metaphysical religious traditions. And it was here 
that he really understood that this was what he was looking for, that his spiritual life had been tending towards this. And that was in 1933, and, and until the end of his life in 1991, he continued to explore new metaphysical traditions and reading widely, adopting new practices, always evolving. So he really became a very kind of committed spiritual seeker throughout his life and very open to all sorts of new spiritual paths as they presented themselves. Meanwhile, keeping this very, very separate from his business life. Yes, he had a, a real faculty, a real ability to compartmentalize his business from his spiritual life. And part of this, I think, was because he was a very private person. Uh, he never lived a very uh, flashy life. He wasn't interested in, in being in the headlines. Um, but another reason was simply pragmatic. He was uh, running a, a broadcasting business, and he was really concerned that in the religiously conservative Midwest, his uh, advertisers and his audiences might misunderstand his spiritual beliefs and his spiritual interests. Um, and so he never really was public with them until very late in life uh, when he began liquidating his businesses with the idea that he was going to use the proceeds from this to uh, endow his, his foundation, which eventually became the Fetzer Institute. But uh, he had long-term colleagues who worked with him uh, in his radio enterprises who knew he had spiritual interests but just had no idea the depth uh, of, of his spiritual interests. Here's the elevator story you just told um, from page 8 of your book. Uh, as a child of 10 or 11, he had found himself in an elevator at a local Decatur department store called Schreudel's. Suddenly he recalled, I had this dream. I dreamed that I was in that elevator shaft and I was holding upon the leg of Jesus Christ. He was going up and I was hanging on, going up the elevator shaft with him. He was looking down at me. The connotation of that, as I interpret it, is that, quote, I will always be there for you, unquote. This vision had a powerful impact on Fetzer. Uh, the incident, which was recorded in a 1982 interview when Fetzer was 80 years old, seems still to resonate with him with all the vividness and import that it had some 70 years before. Indeed, Fetzer offered up the anecdote to the interviewer as the key to his religious life, the first tip of the iceberg as to where I come from spiritually. It's powerful. It is. And what's interesting is that um, even though Fetzer left the Christian church, he always maintained a membership in the local Presbyterian church, but he was never a churchgoer. But he always retained, uh, um, he, uh, he, 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 he remained a Christian of a kind. And so the, the ideas that appealed to him in his early Christianity carried over into his later metaphysical pursuits. And so he always had very fond memories of even the Seventh-day Adventist Church, which he, he found as, as a kind of moral anchor for him, was tremendously important. So he always found the good and the spiritually useful things in every tradition he basically came across. And this was part of his kind of evolutionary process of putting together his worldview uh, over his many years. Your preface starts with a quote from uh, John Fetzer. If they ever write about me, the title will probably be The Nine Lives of John E. Fetzer. And in, interestingly, um, I doubt that it's an accident, um, your book almost exactly divides into nine 
lives. Uh, was that on purpose? No, it actually wasn't conscious. Oh, okay. I mean, because it's not exact, but, but just going through, because I think our listeners would be interested, I'll just go through the, the titles of the chapters. The first is Meeting Jesus in an Elevator, which we just talked about. Then uh, Leaving the Seventh-day Adventism, we talked about that. Then Restless Among the Spirits, Fetzer and the Spiritualist Mediums of Camp Chesterfield, we mentioned that. And then you go on to Finding Ancient Wisdom in the Midwest, Freemasonry, Hermeticism, and Rosicrucianism. And then The Ascended Master's Call, Fetzer Explores the Theosophical Cosmos. And then chapter six is unorthodox science, Fetzer, UFOs, and the paranormal. And then seven is articulating a worldview for the new age. Uh, and then you go on beyond that to the Fetzer Foundation and parapsychological research and to his psychic advisor, Jim Gordon, and to uh, the Fetzer Foundation's mission and so forth. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Brian Wilson and host Michael Lerner. Let's go now to um, articulating a worldview for the new age. Tell us about that. It, it, it has a very interesting context uh, because in the 1960s, early 70s, uh, John Fetzer basically decided to uh, record his worldview as it was uh, at that point in his life. And for me, as a scholar of religion, this is extraordinary because... Um, uh, millions of Americans go through a kind of spiritual process, but very few of us uh, actually record the steps. And so for Fetzer, this was a fascinating thing because it was so well recorded that I could actually put together the elements of his worldview. But the immediate context for this was that John Fetzer was absolutely fascinated with genealogy. And um, he wrote uh, two complete genealogies, uh, the first one of his father's family and the second one of his his mother's family. And part of it is, I think, his father actually died when he was very young, so he never knew his father. And so the genealogy was a way to um, essentially get to know his father through his father's family. And then later, uh, when he came into contact with theosophy and the idea of reincarnation and past lives, he became fascinated by that. And so I think the genealogies were, in a way, uh, a way of exploring uh, past generations of, of Fetzers and Wingans, which it was his mother's side of the family. So when he finally came to the, the point where he wanted to uh, write out his genealogy and publish these, um, he took the last chapters of each book, there are two books, and he basically wrote out an essay for each one, uh, talking about his worldview at that point. So the Fetzer genealogy has his early 1960s worldview, which was heavily influenced by um, uh, uh, the power of positive thinking and, and new thought movements. So there's a lot of discussion of the power of mind over matter and the psychology of that. And then in the early 70s, he published his father's, or his mother's rather, uh, genealogy and also wrote a, a, an extended essay um, for the end of that book. And the interesting thing about that is uh, it, was a, it was eventually published separately um, by the Fetzer Memorial Trust as America's Agony, um, because John Fetzer wrote that second essay 
in the context of kind of the challenges that America was going through in the late 1960s. So the, the student uh, demonstrations, the war in Vietnam, political corruption, those kinds of things. And he was very interested in how the spiritual foundations of America could essentially be uh, recovered and used uh, to put the country back onto um, the right track. And so the America's agony really records a worldview that's heavily influenced, in this case, by theosophy uh, and the idea of guidance by ascended masters. Um, so for me, as a, as a, um, a scholar of comparative religion, uh, having these two documents uh, are, is just absolutely fascinating because the, the change over a decade is marked, but there are you know, spiritual kind of constancies in them, especially this monistic worldview, which became, I think at that point, really fixed in Petzer's mind. You know, he is so fascinating. I mean, his, uh, the depth of his... Uh, informal scholarship in all of these esoteric uh, traditions was extraordinary in itself. Um, and this period where he begins to really lay it out after many years of um, uh, keeping it uh, private, uh, as you say, there's this, uh, uh, this uh, a positive constructivist approach to life, an attitude of expectancy, a belief in accomplishment, and faith in oneself. I'm quoting from your book on page 111. Second, Fetzer believed it was imperative for the average person to accept the idea that all is in the mind within, for it is the image created in his mind that gives man reality to the world outside of him. Uh, contentment is a state of mind which we ourselves have the power to control, and that control lies within our thinking. Third, we must understand that what ultimately determines our thinking is our subconscious mind. When that's understood, there is nothing that cannot be brought to materialization and solution through the technique of meditation, affirmation, and the use of pictorial imagination, i.e. creative visualization. Uh, and all of this is because uh, the human body is actually, quote, an intricate electronic device with a delicate set of transistors built in from head to toe, all of which is controlled by the master component, the subconscious mind. And then, uh, to make this fact plain, Fetzer quotes the entirety of Alice Bailey's great invocation. She is, of course, the, the founder of uh, Theosophy. Um, from point of light within the mind of God, let light stream forth into the minds of men. And it goes on from there. Um, so uh, he took his fascination with radio, uh, understood uh, the spiritual world as actually a, a, a materialist, in one sense, electronic uh, reality, uh, and, uh, and, and therefore conflated both um, technology and, um, and the spiritual world. I'll just read one, mother, one other thing from this, I believe. Around the central sun of our universe is a huge electronic ring composed of the seven colors of the rainbow, which flashes with perpetual motion and brilliancy as though a thousand million suns were being woven into it to feed its transcendent luster. From every part of this rainbow ring dart long, broad shafts of light, sometimes forming into circles small or great, 
whirling around the enormous girdle of the intelligent, scintillating, jewel-like, opal-tinted flame of the central sun within. It is this nucleus of the great sun globe itself, revolving upon its own axis, that constitutes the sublime scene, the center of the universe, the cause of all creation, the universal mind, the supreme principle, the primal cause, the cosmic field, the divine spirit, infinite intelligence, God the Father. I mean, it's a very powerful vision. It is, and something kind of wholly unexpected from a, a businessman from Kalamazoo, Michigan. Right. Yeah, it, it is extraordinary. And in that passage, he's actually quoting uh, or paraphrasing earlier uh, spiritualist sources. So, But he always thought in terms of these uh, metaphors of technology. He was absolutely fascinated with new technologies and... For them, there was a magical quality, and I mean magical almost literally here, in the kinds of technologies that were being created during his lifetime. Um, And he saw a parallel with that with spiritual development as well. Now, he, he saw a danger in technological development. He saw how it could be misused. But he really felt that, ultimately, science and, and spirituality would be harmonized, and there would develop a spiritualized science that would be able to create technologies that would allow us much more easily to um, basically achieve spiritual states or uh, uh, learn spiritual truths or achieve some kind of illumination. So this, this idea of technology and the body as a kind of technological wonder of the universe, I think, was key to Fetzer's thinking. And, of course, again, goes all the way back to his, his early uh, fascination, his dabbling with crystal sets, and early primitive radio. Um, so these metaphors of technology are just incredibly powerful for John Fetzer. And he had this strong belief in ascended masters. Could you speak to that? Yes. Um, the idea of ascended masters really comes out of the, the theosophical tradition. And um, theosophy, of course, is a tradition that was founded in the United States in New York in the late 19th century. Uh, and it had uh, two very interesting founders, uh, uh, Madame Blavatsky, who was a Russian immigrant and spiritualist medium, um, and Colonel Olcott, uh, who was a very interesting character, who's a Civil War veteran and a lawyer. And they came together over their interest in spiritualism and things esoteric in general, and they decided to create a, a, a society for the study of these things. Well, in addition, uh, Madame Levatsky uh, was also fascinated with kind of marrying Western esotericism uh, with Hinduism and Buddhism. And she said this wasn't her idea, but that she had been in contact with spiritual adepts, uh, higher beings, well, human beings who had achieved higher spiritual levels uh, through a variety of means, including telepathy. And so the information that uh, she published in her, her two uh, great works, Isis Unveiled and The Secret Doctrine, uh, are basically channeled texts, what we would call channeled texts. This is information coming from uh, uh, higher beings that's being uh, telepathically and otherwise transmitted through Madame Blavatsky. So the idea of Ascended Masters and there, there being a brotherhood out there of Ascended Masters who are ready and willing and able to basically help human beings um, achieve their own spiritual evolution, but also the spiritual evolution of humanity in general, 
was a really powerful idea for John Fetzer. And he was fascinated with all sorts of different theosophical offshoots. Um, he was interested in, in, in theosophy proper, but also in the arcane school of Alice Bailey. We talked about the great invocation just earlier. Uh, he was interested in the writings of a man named Barrett Spaulding. And we can go on and on. He was, there was another group called the I Am Religious Activity, which is another theosophical offshoot. But one of the key ideas that runs through all these groups is individual spiritual evolution guided by a body of ascended masters who could be basically um, uh, contacted through the process of channeling. And so for John Fetzer, that was just tantalizing. He just found that just absolutely fascinating, uh, that there's a, the possibility that there are these beings out there willing and um, eager, essentially, to help human beings achieve a higher spiritual level. So for channeling, for Fetzer, rather, channeling became uh, um, a really important uh, aspect of his worldview, especially later in life, uh, when he took on a number of spiritual advisors who were essentially channelers. Including uh, Gary Gordon. Um, or Jim, what's his name? Jim Gordon. Jim Gordon, I'm sorry. Jim Gordon. Yeah, Jim right. Gordon is... Uh, Interesting character. He uh, um, is based in Texas, uh, and he was a psychic from from youth. And uh, through a variety of organizations, especially the Coptic Fellowship of America, uh, wound up lecturing in Michigan, and that's how he came to know John Fetzer. And Fetzer really found a kindred spirit in Jim Gordon because Jim Gordon uh, claimed to be able to channel the ascended masters. Uh, and so for the last 10 years of, of John Fetzer's life, Jim Gordon basically was his conduit to the wisdom of the masters. And it helped John Fetzer in a variety of ways, making personal decisions, business decisions, but also ultimately in the direction of what would become the Fetzer Institute. Right, and Jim Gordon is still alive and with us. He is. And he runs Inner Light Ministries. That's correct. Right. Yeah, and I had the opportunity, actually, to go down. He's living in Austin now, uh, to visit with him a couple of times. And he was uh, fantastically informative, and uh, one of the joys was that uh, he'd actually saved quite a bit of documentation um, from his channelings, which were all recorded on uh, cassette tapes and then eventually transcribed. So we actually have a full set of, almost a full set, of uh, the channelings that Jim Gordon did for John Fetzer over a period of almost 10 years. And, you know, it's so interesting. I first came in touch with the Fetzer Institute when uh, Rob Lehman had just taken it over. And um, I remember a meeting in Washington, D.C. that I think was sponsored by the Institute of Noetic Sciences, which he was very close to. And being in the Bay Area, I've been connected with the Institute of Noetic Sciences uh, for many years, particularly when uh, Brendan O'Regan uh, was vice president for research and Wink Franklin was the executive director, and uh, and I knew Willis Harmon as well. So that whole community is sort of part of my extended community. And I think it was at a ION-sponsored meeting, somebody sponsored it, but it could have been the Fetzer Institute itself in Washington, D.C., that I met Rob Lehman, uh, who had just taken over uh, the Fetzer Institute, uh, knew Mr. Fetzer before he died, uh, and um, was really essentially reframing uh, the Fetzer Institute. 
And uh, I've been friends and deeply respected Rob ever since. Um, and, um, but what I remember very vividly was going to the Fetzer Institute for the first time. And in the central hall uh, was an exhibit which is no longer there, which was the busts of, uh, how many was it, a dozen ascended masters? Something like that. I mean, yeah, Socrates and uh, yeah. Christ. And uh, can you name the people who were there? Uh, let me see. Off the top of my head, there was um, Socrates, Ramses, um, um, Christ, right? No. Oh, Christ actually, was not there. It was Joseph of Arimathea. Oh, okay. And um, uh, let's see. There was um, King Henry. Uh, uh, Francis, oh. of France, um, and Thomas Jefferson. Right. And I'm, I'm sure I'm leaving out right. with you. I don't have the, the, the book in front of me. Now help me with this, because um, I believe, I mean, for one thing, Fetzer was a very high-level uh, Freemason, right? Right. Yeah, Extremely high-level Freemason. So did he not view himself as one of the, uh, or potentially view himself, I may be wrong, as one of the one of the masters, and in fact potentially an incarnation of some of the people whose busts he had in that uh, rotunda. That's correct. That's correct. Um, during his lifetime, he was very modest about his kind of spiritual achievements. Right. So people tried to label him a master, but he was always. Mirrored. He basically said, well, no, I haven't quite achieved that. But um, it is true that uh, it's really probable that the, the, the busts of the, the famous men in what was called the Hall of Records in the center of the Fetzer Institute uh, were uh, John Fetzer's past lives, or at least some of his past lives. Um, Fetzer was just absolutely fascinated with his uh, charting his past lives. And this started very early. He, um, he encountered one of the tools he used to basically develop his past lives was the Ouija board. And um, so over a period of years, he would work the Ouija board with his personal secretary, and they would essentially develop the narratives for a number of John Fetzer's past lives. Uh, for example, Thomas Jefferson. Um, and he charted past lives all the way back to the mythical continent of Atlantis. So um, this goes way back. And one of the interesting things uh, that happened with my second visit to Jim Gordon was that he also had uh, an entire uh, copy of the, the, the Ouija board transcript. So I was able to basically reconstruct quite a few of um, John Fetzer's past lives. So the Hall of Records essentially was uh, a kind of shrine to um, what I think were many of John Fetzer's past lives, if not all. And it was essentially this idea of collective wisdom that over a, a series of past lives, John Fetzer had basically learned things in each one of these lives that allowed him to basically put together his kind of capstone project. He believed he was always on a kind of spiritual mission to create um, some kind of institution to catalyze the spiritual transformation of the world. And he believed in his present life, that was the Fetzer Institute. And the reason he was actually able to do it, he believed, was that he had lived these extraordinary past lives 
that had given him the spiritual wisdom uh, to basically create this institution, which would then live beyond him and, in fact, have a 500-year mission uh, after Fetzer's death. So the Hall of Records, and that idea of Hall of Records actually goes back to Edgar Cayce, uh, who believes that around the planet there were halls of records of, of uh, important uh, spiritual documents that were would be discovered on the cusp of the kind of global spiritual transformation of the world. So John Fetzer took over that idea of the Hall of Records to create this kind of pantheon of masters that he believed he was connected to and that had allowed him to basically create the institution that, um, that surrounded them, the, the Fetzer Institute itself. You mentioned Edgar Cayce, the great, really extraordinary uh, psychic and uh, sort of founder of American holistic medicine. And very interesting, you probably know this, uh, many parallels to Rudolf Steiner in Europe. Yes. Uh, you're familiar with those parallels? Well, uh, I know a number of the themes were uh, parallel. Yeah. Um, so uh, things like um, uh, uh, ancient civilizations, um, uh, ancient technologies that were going to be rediscovered in the future, um, spiritual healing, uh, ideas of, of um, uh, a new kind of uh, healing modalities. Uh, I think there was also um, connections with uh, education and agriculture. So there are a lot of things that basically Edgar Casey picked up on uh, through his, his, his readings. There's so many directions I could take this, but I just want to wrap up a few of the pieces we've been talking about. Um, one of the great challenges that Rob Lehman and his colleagues uh, faced uh, as they took over the Institute uh, while John Fetzer was alive and then after his death was how to take um, this extraordinary uh, esoteric vision and its mission of finding... Um, uh, you know, the scientific verification uh, through parapsychology research and the like uh, into, uh, quote, the real world um, uh, and to find a way for this work to be respected and credible. I mean, just as John Fetzer found it necessary uh, to um, keep his inner uh, mystical and esoteric beliefs uh, private so that he could be a businessman, in effect, the Fetzer Institute faced a similar challenge of how it wants to be faithful to, uh, as they say, Mr. Fetzer. Everybody always calls him Mr. Fetzer uh, at the Fetzer Institute. But how to be faithful to John Fetzer's vision and at the same time uh, bring it into the world and do credible work. I, I think, uh, just for the record, that Rob Lehman and his colleagues since have actually done a quite remarkable job of that. I was very involved with them uh, when they played a seminal role in funding uh, Bill Moyer's uh, great series, Healing in the Mind, which was a PBS series and a book. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the last uh, piece of that series was about our work at Commonweal on the Cancer Help Program called Wounded Healers. So I had a kind of a first-hand vision of that. And uh, so I've followed the... the several iterations of the Fetzer Institute in which in different ways they've, they've tried to be faithful to John Fetcher's vision and also figure out how to work in the real world. 
And it seems to me that if one were to summarize, in a sense, and I will welcome your correction of this, uh, that, uh, as, as we've said, John Fetzer believed that the inner esoteric mystical truth was uh, uh, isomorphic with uh, electronic radio waves and that someday somebody would prove that mm -hmm. and therefore prove uh, the reality that everything is based in love and the whole mystical vision that he held. And despite the efforts of parapsychology researchers, it would be generous to say that we're still on the frontiers of making the connection that John Fetzer so deeply believed was true. I think that's correct, yes. Um, back in the uh, 1970s, when uh, John Fetzer was getting ready to basically liquidate his businesses uh, in order to use the, the profits to endow the Fetzer Institute, um, he decided he would start giving grants um, to primarily parapsychological research. Um, so, uh, for example, the research that was being done by J.B. Ryan at Duke University. That's an exact example. And um, they did this for a number of years, but at a certain point, the Fetzer and his board decided that the research really wasn't going anywhere, um, that it, uh, it wasn't making the kinds of strides that he had hoped. So in the 1980s, and I think part of this had to do with his own failing health and the health of his wife, uh, he really wanted to explore alternative medicine and especially energy healing, so using subtle energies as a means of diagnosing and treating disease. Uh, and this fits with his ideas about technology as well, because he really believes that uh, we could develop technologies to read, for example, the, the aura of the human body and use that for diagnosis and treatment. So he funded, for example, uh, the ARE Clinic, the Association for Research and Enlightenment Clinic. Which, which was the Casey work, Edgar Casey's work. Exactly. Yeah. And that was in uh, Arizona, and they worked together for a number of years uh, to develop alternative pr uh, uh, health practices, but specifically to develop um, uh, energy medicine technologies. And probably the, the high point of that was uh, a conference that was held in 89 in Madras, India, which was one of the first international conferences to deal with the idea of energy medicine. But again, uh, the potential for this um, never quite paid off. So I think that's one of the reasons why when John Fetzer died in 91, uh, the board of the, the Fetzer Institute, including Rob Lehman, decided to move the Institute in more mainstream directions, uh, exploring the, you know, the connections between mind, body, and health. And I think that was a shrewd move um, because there was a kind of upswell of interest in the country in th these kinds of studies done very rigorously, very scientifically. And while the payoffs wouldn't be as spectacular as John Fetzer had hoped with his energy medicine technology, there was already a long track record showing that uh, by uh, honoring the connection between mind, body, and spirit, uh, you could actually affect uh, healing. So I think you're exactly right. Um, Rob Lehman really moved the Institute in a much more kind of mainstream direction, but honoring John Fetzer's uh, vision of the spirit 
Um, and even in, in, in more recent times when they've really focused on love and forgiveness and promoting partnerships and programs to basically uh, promote spirituality in everyday life. Again, this really honors uh, John Fetzer's commitment to uh, what he hoped would lead to global uh, spiritual transformation. So the Institute itself has evolved, but I think it's evolved in directions that John Fetzer would definitely approve of. You know, it's so interesting because while, in other words, from my point of view, the question of whether there is a measurable, energetic way that one can demonstrate the reality of unseen energies is still an open question. We still, we haven't figured it out, but that doesn't mean they don't exist. What to me, and I'm just speaking personally, is pretty unquestionable, is the reality of a set of phenomena that we don't have explanations yet for yet. So for example, uh, the remote viewing work, it's pretty clear to anybody that looks at it objectively that there are people who have the ability, you know, the Central Intelligence Agency, the military, lots of others have explored it. There are people who have the ability to do uh, remote viewing. Uh, it's pretty clear to me, uh, in fact, entirely clear to me, that there are medical intuitives, of whom Edgar Casey is a perfect example, but there are many medical intuitives uh, working today who have uh, gifts to see into people's bodies, minds, spirits, and provide uh, information that was completely unavailable otherwise. Uh, It's entirely clear to me that uh, the Society for the Study of Near-Death Experiences has well demonstrated that many uh, people with near-death experiences, and there are many more now since we keep resuscitating people, often have the experience of going through a dark tunnel, seeing a light at the end of it. They may see the light as the Christ or a garden or something else. And then uh, either they're asked, do they want to go on, or they are told it's not their time. And they go back into their bodies and essentially never fear death again. Um, It's clear to me that, uh, you know, ESP phenomena, which uh, the Institute of Noetic Sciences and many others have worked on, are real phenomena. So my experience is that while we haven't demonstrated what John Fetzer hoped to demonstrate, namely the physical electronic or electromagnetic basis of these phenomena, the phenomena are, to my mind, real. Mm -hmm. They're very real. Um, And another phenomenon that fascinated Fetzer and fascinated Carl Jung, for that matter, was uh, UFOs. And, you know, I've followed the UFO literature, and as um, uh, people have begun to declassify uh, the UFO research uh, in countries around the world, there's literally no question that, if you just objectively look at it, that UFOs are real and exist, and that people have seen them and so forth. Now, that doesn't mean we know what they are, but so to me, there's this whole set of phenomena that fascinated Fetzer and are, let's say, broadly congruent with his view that there is a world beyond the material world. Um, And the only, quote, failure, such as it is, is that the uh, parapsychology research and the subtle energies research have failed to demonstrate the linkage between those uh, 
phenomena and uh, material science. Yeah, I think that's correct. And um, it, it, it's, it's tantalizing because um, recognition of this phenomena, a wide range of, of this kind of paranormal phenomena, I mean, go back centuries. And of course, a lot of the interests that we have today popped up as early as the 19th century, UFOs and things like that. Um, so yes, just in terms of the number of people who have experienced these things, um, I think it's pretty clear that there is something going on. Now, what's the right approach uh, to scientifically understanding these? Uh, I don't think we've quite gotten there yet, but it, it makes sense because science is it's usually practiced as a materialist pursuit and based on you know, materialist uh, preconceptions. So John Fetzer was very interested in, in creating the, the environment in which a spiritualized science could, could evolve, could arise, which he thought would have a much better chance of, of demonstrating the linkages um, that you mentioned. And in fact, even though the Fetzer Institute itself is no longer investing in this kind of research, there's another arm of the Fetzer Institute called the Fetzer Memorial Trust. And it's an interesting organization because it, uh, it, it, it's, it has essentially two missions. One is to preserve the legacy of John Fetzer. So they're the ones that actually commissioned uh, this book, Johnny Fetzer and the Quest for the New Age. And they're also doing uh, a lot of online archival work to basically bring John Fetzer to uh, a larger audience. And if people are interested in that, there's a website, infinitepotential.com, that they can look at. You're listening to a TNS Conversation with Brian Wilson and host Michael Lerner. But there's another thing that the uh, Memorial Trust does, and that is they uh, administer something called the Franklin Fetzer Fund. And it's named after Wink Franklin. Um, from IONS, um, and essentially it's uh, um, quantum mechanical research that's looking at things like quantum entanglement as a possible avenue to get at exactly the kinds of connections that John Fetzer was so fascinated with. Uh, and of course, it's research that's, um, for me, so highly technical, it, it might as well be yet another esoteric spiritual tradition. Um, because I can't say I, I quite understand it all, um, but there are people, scientists, basically working on this uh, area that have very high hopes that this is the avenue to basically kind of connect or prove uh, the connection between science and spirit. Yes, and that enterprise is headed by a brilliant German physicist uh, researcher named Jan Wolacek. Uh, who, uh, whose credibility, I think, is very high. Uh, I believe my friend and colleague Jeremy Waletsky is on that board um, and has had a long history with the Fetzer Institute. And from Jeremy's accounts and from my conversations with Jan, uh, I think the, the direction of that work is uh, very significant. I think what Jan's trying to do is really rethink physics itself. Uh, because he believes, and I think there's a lot to be said for this, that only if we rethink physics will we develop an integrative theory that enables us to understand these paranormal uh, uh, and subtle energy issues that have failed to yield to conventional parapsychology research. Yes, and again, this uh, this this follows in in. Uh, 
in John Fetzer's uh, footsteps. I mean, this is exactly the kind of thing he was interested in doing. Um, he was hoping that it, we might actually accomplish more in his own lifetime, but he realized that this was a long-term pursuit um, and that it might take decades uh, in order to perfect this. But this is a, precisely the kind of spiritualized science that uh, John Fetzer was convinced uh, was going to be so important for the next evolutionary step in the, in the planet. Now, Fetzer practiced transcendental meditation for a while. He, uh, he uh, uh, had an uh, interview uh, with the Maharishi and talked to him about the effective use of TV to promote the TM message in the United States. Um, but uh, in the 1970s, you write, uh, he uh, discovered A Course in Miracles, uh, which is a very, very significant piece of work. Uh, tell us about Fetz, the Course in Miracles and Fetzer's interest in it. Well, this is a, a very interesting story because um, he was always fascinated with channel text and always interested in, in, in reading new channel text. And during the 1970s, uh, he had a mild heart attack and wound up having to uh, go for a time to recover at his home in Arizona. And there, uh, his friend uh, Judy Scotch, Judy Scotch Whitson, tracked him down because she had come into contact with um, the, 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 the channeler who basically provided the material for A Course in Miracles and took it upon herself to uh, publish these materials. And um, so one of the first published copies of A Course in Miracles uh, Judy Scotch Whitson sent to John Fetzer while he was convalescing. And he read these materials, and, and he just he felt that this was the thing he was looking for all his life. I mean, it was uh, a very, um, what, um, comprehensive but understanding, understandable uh, um, uh, relation of, a, of the monistic worldview and the power of, of, of mind over matter. So from then on, A Course in Miracles really became one of his Bibles, one of the things he always went back to. Uh, he created study circles to um, study A Course in Miracles. So when he was back in Kalamazoo, he got a group of trusted friends together who basically read the, the three volumes of A Course in Miracles um, in order to basically put these ideas into practice. And that group lasted for several years. Uh, eventually it disbanded, and then in the 1980s he created a, a new uh, group of spiritual friends, uh, which they simply called the Monday Night Group. And it would begin with, um, for example, uh, reciting the, um, the uh, great invocation of uh, Alice Bailey, and then studying portions of A Course in Miracles, and then studying the latest uh, channelings from Jim Gordon. So for him, A Course in Miracles just became a tremendously important text in his life. Yes, and as you mentioned, uh, uh, Judy Scotch Whitson um, introduced him to the Course, uh, became an important advisor to him. Um, Fetzer once told her that they'd been married in a previous life. Um, uh, she served on the uh, Fetzer Institute board for the next 20 years. And it was through Whitson, and I'm reading uh, ellip elliptically from your text, that Fetzer enormously expanded his context in the psychic and metaphysical subcultures of the U.S. Um, so uh, she introduced him to uh, 
Brennan O'Regan and Willis Harmon of the Institute of Noetic Sciences, Andrija Puharich, uh, who uh, promoted Yuri Geller and was an expert on Nikola uh, uh, Tesla. Um, and uh, uh, she and he met Stanley Krippner uh, uh, from the California Institute of Integrative Studies um, and, uh, uh, and uh, William McGarry from the Association of ARE and so on. So um, he, he, uh, he, he really was deeply conversant uh, with the, the whole subculture of um, uh, the psychic and metaphysical world in the U.S. And I think, fair to say, respected in those subcultures. It wasn't like he was just a wealthy guy who was interested because as we've seen, he had an extraordinary grasp of a lot of these uh, issues, and they were his central life passion. Yes, I think sometimes when he was introduced uh, to these kinds of stars, um, there was a little bit of skepticism. Who is this businessman from the Midwest? Um, but once they got talking and, and, and understood the kind of depth of his knowledge and his curiosity, um, just how far he respected um, these people and how, how much he really deeply wanted to learn from them, it really opened doors. And so he cultivated not only a local circle of kind of what I'm calling the, the Kalamazoo metaphysical underground, but also people nationally and also internationally uh, who were um, outstanding you know, figures uh, in the paranormal world, in the metaphysical world. Uh, and so it's amazing the kinds of networks he created. And, of course, these became tremendously important as he developed uh, the Fetzer Foundation in the 70s and 80s, which eventually would become Fetzer Institute. So, yes, he, and again, all of this, while he's running his, his, his multi-million dollar businesses, uh, he's also really extensively exploring um, all sorts of metaphysical uh, avenues uh, nationally and internationally. So it's amazing that he had this focus and this energy and this curiosity to learn, which continued right up until his last days. Tell us about an extraordinary uh, moment when, uh, when um, he asked uh, uh, Judith Scotch Whitson uh, to arrange for him to have an opportunity to experience LSD. This was on February 17, 1979, at the Smuggler's Inn Motor Lodge in Tucson. Um, uh, Fetzer and Whitson met with three others, including Willis Harmon and Al Hubbard, both of whom had done LSD research and were skilled in the controlled use of the drug. After, the brief, after a brief discussion about what Fetzer hoped to gain from the experience, the group gathered in a circle where Fetzer recited a prayer from the Course in Miracles, followed by a 10-minute meditation. What happened then? Well, uh, they administered the drug, and apparently for hours and hours afterwards, uh, he had gone into something like a trance state and began talking uh, in the voice of the Holy Spirit. And it's interesting because the reason John Fetzer wanted to do this was that um, he had had some psychic experiences, um, some mystical experiences in his lifetime, but he never really thought he had a very 
really rich mystical life, and for that reason he, he relied quite a bit on psychics and channelers to basically access this. And of course, in the 60s and 70s, uh, psychedelics of all kinds were being touted as kind of the, the, the shortcut to mystical experience and enlightenment. So I think at a certain point, he decided, okay, um, let's try this and let's see what it does. And he arranged for this um, experiment, uh, very controlled, um, and it was apparently recorded. And so after he had come out of the, the LSD um, um, trance uh, and had rested, he listened to the recordings, and apparently he was kind of appalled at what he heard. So there was something in the experience that was deeply unsettling for him. Um, and unfortunately, we don't know exactly what that was. Um, the tape, if it still exists, is, is hidden someplace, long gone. Um, there's no transcript of it, so we don't really know what he was talking about when he was under the influence of the drug. But whatever it was, was something that was, again, he found troubling. He found um, difficult. And he never tried it ever again. And in fact, he um, basically you know, didn't want to have a, any kind of drugs, drug experience after that. But what's fascinating is, I mean, he at this time was, um, I think, 79, so he was, he was quite, he was getting up there, uh, and yet he still had this kind of adventurous spirit that he was going to try this. But having tried it once, he decided that the, the experience was, was powerful, but in ways that weren't entirely positive for him. And so from then on, he really simply relied on psychics, and especially Jim Gordon, to give him the access to this kind of myst, uh, mystical or spiritual life that he craved, but he never again wanted to um, to try a drug experience. I'm reading from your book, page 147. According to Whitson, this is after the drug was administered. Well, let's see. Uh, Fetcher spent 24 hours under its influence. According to Whitson, Fetcher spoke for much of this period in a deeply altered voice, beginning with, quote, I am the Holy Spirit. I will tell you about your race, unquote. The voice then proceeded to narrate the creation of the universe and the history of the world up until the founding of the United States, at which point it dwelt upon the writing of the Declaration of Independence and the role of Saint-Germain in the process. The voice also told Fetzer about his spirit guides and assured him that he would always have spiritual help in his further journey. And then, as you say, despite this assurance and despite the fact that the drug had no lingering after effects, it is reported Fetzer found the entire experience unsettling, if not embarrassing. It's not clear why, uh, and, uh, and so on. Uh, but he tried it. He did. Yeah. He did. And I think he was glad he tried it, yeah. even though it wasn't a positive experience for yeah. him. Yeah. Um, it did give him a kind of glimpse into something wholly other. Um, and I think that informed his thinking from then on. Right. But he was pragmatic enough to know that okay, this really wasn't for him. Everybody has a different path, uh, and his wasn't along these lines. Yeah. You know, it's... Uh, you've, you've spent time at the, the Fetzer Institute itself, I imagine. Did you spend much time in their archives? I, I've spent some time there. I read both of the genealogies. I've read everything published I could get my hands on about mm -hmm. Fetzer. Uh, did you spend much time there in your research? 
Yes, I was very lucky because uh, my institution gave me a sabbatical for a year, and this was a couple of years ago. Uh, and basically the Fetzer Institute set me up in an office in their beautiful and very interesting administration building. And I had full run of the archives, um, which turned out to be just extraordinarily rich, um, going all the way back to uh, John Fetzer's childhood. So the archives were just um, a wonderful experience. And um, as you can see by the documentation in the back of the book, there was a lot to go through. Uh, and it just made for a very, very rich, rich portrait. And there were surprises, too. Um, one of the joys of researchers to uh, basically encounter new archival material and new documentary material. And that happened during my sabbatical because I was very interested in the process by which John Fetzer left Seventh-day Adventism, which played such a big role in his life and was very formative. But we really didn't know a whole lot about it. But just serendipitously, um, the Institute, which still owns John Fetzer's home, uh, was cleaning out a closet and at, at his old home and found a, a very small suitcase that had been tucked away years ago and forgotten. And when they brought it to the Institute and opened it, uh, it contained um, just a number of anti-Seventh-day uh, Adventist pamphlets, books, uh, all sorts of materials, including a series of letters that John Fetzer had exchanged with other Seventh-day Adventists or people who had left the Seventh-day Adventist church and had served kind of as his mentors in, in, in bringing him out of the church. So it allowed me to basically create this fully orbed kind of understanding of the process by which he left the church, which for him was very difficult and in some ways traumatic. Um, so that archival find was uh, just extraordinary, and I think adds to the richness of the book. Something that interests me about Fetzer, he never let go, is it not true, of his um, connection not only to God, but to, uh, uh, to Jesus, to the Christ. And, and Christ remains central to him throughout. Is that not true? That's correct. Um, both the person of Jesus, the Jesus of the Gospels, I think, remained tremendously important. Uh, and of course, you know, his whole ethical basis is the golden rule, John Fetzer's. Um, but he also thought in terms of uh, what he called Christ consciousness. And again, this is another idea that comes out of uh, theosophy and metaphysical religions generally. And that's the idea that the, the spirit, the, the Christ spirit basically permeates the universe as an energy and is available to all who wish to cultivate it. And it helps people to basically further their spiritual journey or further their spiritual evolution. So John Fetzer talked quite a bit uh, about the Christ consciousness. And early on, there was actually um, uh, a kind of affirmation that people at the Institute were asked to make uh, that included uh, an acknowledgement of the power of the Christ consciousness. So for him, um, yes, his Christian roots always continue throughout his life, not in a very orthodox way, uh, but in a very powerful way, in a very meaningful way for him. Yes, you know, uh, I'm fascinated by and uh, the work of um, dissident or semi-dissident theologians like Matthew Fox, who wrote a book called The Cosmic Christ, and 
Brother David Steindelrast, who I did a spiritual biography of uh, for the New School at the request of his community, uh, who also distinguishes between the historical Jesus and and uh, the Christ, uh, uh, the Christ, um, and um, one finds this also in Richard Rohr, who's another uh, contemporary um, uh, Catholic uh, mystic, uh, who has I think his new book uh, is called something like "The Christ is Another Name for Everything." Um, so. Uh, this vision which one finds um, in many um, mystical Christian thinkers uh, that Jesus was a manifestation of a energy that uh, even in biblical narratives has existed since the beginning of time and that that energy can be experienced as Christ energy or Christ consciousness. And so... I understand that, in some sense, John Fetzer shared that experience of the Christ, that, that the Christ was more than the historic Jesus, but in fact uh, a uh, sort of eternal, uh, eternal cosmic energy. Yes, I think that's exactly correct. I mean, as, as the logos, essentially, um, he thought in terms of... of, uh, of the Christ consciousness is being permeate, it permeates the universe and is always available. So for him, this gave a, a great deal of confidence that his you know, spiritual search would ultimately be successful um, because this energy, he believed, was uh, available to anybody at whatever stage of spiritual evolution they were. You know, this is a, a, a sort of a diversion for a moment, uh, comment on... Uh, contemporary America, but I've always been saddened that um, uh, progressive circles that, you know, focus on important issues like the environment and justice and democracy and many things I deeply believe in, but they often look down on um, people uh, who in their lives, like John Fetzer, have had transformative experiences of Jesus or of uh, the cosmic Christ, uh, Christ energy, whatever you want to call it, um, as somehow lesser than um, other manifestations of spirit or just a secular worldview. And, you know, I find that so sad because um, why, what is, what possible reason is there for seeing um, these transformative experiences of the Christ that can have such powerful effects on individuals' lives and on whole communities, what is the reason for seeing that as lesser than, uh, you know, Buddhism or uh, Sufism or any of the other things that are much more, or, or for that matter, Judaism uh, or, uh, or Islam or uh, any of the things, it's almost as if in the progressive community, the one thing that is suspect is um, to have had a life changed uh, by an experience of the Christ. And, and I find that sad because it, um, it cuts the progressive effort to bring justice and um, and democratic values and so forth to everyone by uh, sort of 
excluding this, the manifestation that um, so much of the country still holds sacred. So I just, uh, it's a diversion, but I, it's in my heart, so I mention it. No, I have to agree, and I think part of it is, is uh, a lack of understanding uh, from people coming from a secular worldview that um, there are, there's not simply a Christianity, but Christianities. Absolutely. And so there's a tendency to lump uh, anybody who has a, a Christian experience together with you know, very intolerant versions of Christianity, of fundamentalist Christianity. So I think there's a, there's a tendency to tar with the same brush. Um, and a lack of nuance, a lack of understanding um, that, that kind of provokes these kinds of knee-jerk responses. But I think you're exactly right. I mean, it's, it's another resource that should be recognized um, for the ultimate kind of reformation, not only of this country, but of, of the planet. One of the things, my wife is a, um, a scholar of uh, comparative religion and environmental studies. And she basically studies uh, environmentalism within Christian congregations, which tends to be a rather neglected uh, um, uh, theme or, or topic. And she's finding that within a variety of different Christian con- congregations around the country, um, there's you know uh, an immense respect for the environment and a way of working in Christian values to basically protect it. And this is something that people are aware of, again, because I think they, they tend to... Um, conflate uh, much more kind of intolerant versions of Christianity with Christianity as a whole. So I think for us, scholars of religion, we need to basically recover the nuance uh, in order to basically demonstrate that, um, that there are people of goodwill out there uh, who come from a, a Christian background who have a tremendous amount to uh, contribute to basically kind of the revitalization of the, of, of, of the nation and, and of the world. Yes, and I, I think one of the things that I know we're both aware of is uh, the growing number of people who call themselves spiritual but not religious. Yeah. And so one finds this, um, you know, a quote, spiritual but not religious theme, which in, in one way is very salutary because um, it rises above... Um, uh, sort of dogmatic, uh, exoteric expressions of all the great traditions. But on the other hand, what it cuts people off from is um, uh, many of the shared rituals and sense of community that uh, really only some kind of um, community of spiritual experience provides. And so I think that's one of the great dilemmas that we face, that um, organized religion, because it tends to celebrate the exoteric, you know, more dogmatic dimension of religion, uh, turns people off for good reasons. And so many of them go into a kind of disembodied spiritualism, uh, whereas, uh, in fact, if you look within all the great religions, you find the esoteric core uh, which really is the spirituality that I think many people are looking for. So it's a very complicated, difficult uh, psychological situation, I think, that we find ourselves in. Yeah, because it's fascinating. Um, one of the things that the Fetzer book led me to do was to um, do much more extensive research on this growing demographic of spiritual but not religious. And even come up with an acronym for it, SBNRs. 
And what's interesting is the sociologists who are doing most of the research on this group, um, what they demonstrate is that there is a real hunger for community among the SBNRs. And they do come together uh, in some ways, sometimes virtually, sometimes actually in the flash. Uh, but the groups they, they form tend to be very um, fragile. They, they, they tend to fragment easily. Um, so I think you're right. I mean, community has to have tradition behind it as well uh, to create that kind of foundation and cement. And giving that up for the freedom of being an SBNR uh, is problematic because you're also giving up the kind of cohesiveness that creates powerful communities that are necessary for um, social and change, environmental change, uh, what have you. Are you going to write about this, or have you? I haven't. I haven't. I've been thinking about it, and one of the things that uh, the Fetzer book has motivated me to do is to create a course, uh, which I'm simply calling Introduction to Spirituality Studies. And what I'm hoping is, after teaching this for uh, several years, that I can develop a textbook. Um, because what I found was, again, there's a great deal of nuance here that gets lost. Um, all religious traditions, I mean, when you practice the highest values uh, and beliefs in a religious tradition, that is spirituality within that tradition. So there's Christian spirituality, there's Muslim spirituality, Jewish spirituality, etc. And this is you know, tremendously powerful and a theme that runs through uh, these traditions, and both East and West. I don't want to leave out Hinduism or Buddhism. But in this country, we've also developed this very independent kind of spirituality. Uh, and I trace it back, of course, to Ralph Waldo Emerson and his self-reliance, uh, which, as you put it, tends to be kind of a disembodied spirituality. It's a, it's a, it's a highly individualistic spirituality, um, which is problematic because it doesn't have these communal elements to it. So what I'd like to do in my course is to balance traditional spirituality found in established religious traditions with this developing uh, kind of independent spirituality, American spirituality, or spiritual but not religious spirituality, uh, and talk about the overlaps between the two and how both bring important resources um, to you know, the world. On the one hand, tradition, but on the other hand, freedom. And we need to somehow integrate these things. Well, that's fascinating. Uh, um, the spiritual but not religious SBNR, they're also known as spiritual but not affiliated SBNA. Um, and um, the, uh, there's a very interesting uh, uh, categorization by a woman named Linda Mercadante and where she, she divides the uh, SBNRs into five groups, dissenters who are people who for the most part make a conscious effort to veer away from institutional religion, casuals who see religious and spiritual practices as primarily functional, explorers who um, uh, have a spiritual wanderlust, seekers who are looking for a spiritual home uh, but contemplate recovering earlier identities, uh, and immigrants, uh, people who found themselves in novel spiritual realm and trying to adjust to this newfound identity. So it, it's good to think of them as as, as diverse um, as they truly are. Uh, well, I'm so glad you're thinking about that. Have you uh, decided what, what you're going to work on next? Is this the next project as you see it, or is there something else that intrigues you? Well, there's this project, and I'm, I'm 
absolutely fascinated by spiritual biography. Um, I've, I've done the spiritual biography of John Harvey Kellogg and now John Fetzer. And the next one is I, I really want to tackle the kind of father of American spirituality. So I'm uh, thinking about a book on uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson. Oh, how wonderful. But on a very specific part of his life, because late in his life, in 1871, uh, he took a trip to California. And the trip is fairly well documented, um, not by Emerson himself, but by his traveling colleagues. And what's fascinating is... Um, well, a number of things. On the trip, he meets some really interesting people. Uh, he stops off in Salt Lake City and has a meeting with Brigham Young of the LDS Church, um, comes to California and is lecturing in San Francisco, and it turns out that the competition is Dwight L. Moody. Uh, so, you know, you have the, the new spirituality and the old spirituality basically duking it out in, in San Francisco. And then Emerson then takes a trip up to Yosemite and meets John Muir. Oh, my goodness. So it's a tremendously interesting, I think, uh, important trip and part of his life. But the other thing that really fascinates me is that near the end of Emerson's life, he began to have cognitive problems. Uh, and eventually he'd become almost completely aphasic. And one of the themes that comes out of the writings about this trip is just how well Emerson handled this growing affliction. And I think it has to do with his, his kind of spiritual foundation that allowed him uh, to live into old age with this really uh, tremendously debilitating cognitive problem uh, and still remain reasonably happy and, and productive. So I think focusing on the end of Emerson's life instead of the famous you know, uh, beginning of his life as a lecturer with all the famous, um, you know, essays on self-reliance and the oversoul and things like that, which are tremendously important. But looking at his later life, his life as an old man, uh, and use that as the basis of a spiritual biography, um, I'm just fascinated. I think that'll make a great project. I profoundly share your interest in spiritual biography. At this interview that we're doing for the New School at Commonweal, we have about 300 conversations up now. And um, many of the ones I do, I call spiritual biographies because I uh, talk to somebody um, about their work. But what really interests me is the the core spiritual theme of how they became who they are. And so that's what I did with Brother David Steindl-Rast, but I've done it with many uh, far less famous people just because it's such a a fascinating theme for me. If you ever go to the uh, the New School website, www.tns.commonweal.org, or just Google the New School at Commonweal, and then type in spiritual biography, you'll find dozens uh, of these. But if you do um, Emerson next, uh, the elderly Emerson next, uh, there are two books I want to mention to you which uh, you may or may not know. One is a quite well-known book, which you probably know, by Carlos Baker called Emerson Among the Eccentrics, a Group Portrait, which I find just extraordinary. Um, and the other, which is quite unknown, is by a friend of mine, late friend of mine, named Richard Grossman. It's called The Tao of Emerson. And uh, it brings together uh, uh, Lao Tzu and Ralph Waldo Emerson. And what uh, and so you have quotes from Emerson and quotes from Lao Tzu on opposing pages, and what uh, Grossman 
uh, believes is that Emerson uh, embodied uh, Lao Tzu's wisdom before the Tao Te Ching was translated. And so it's a absolutely fascinating uh, piece of work. I, I recommend both to you if, you, if you pursue this. I actually wasn't aware of either book, so I'll, I'm going well, to... Well, the, the first one, uh, Emerson Among the Eccentrics, you will recognize as a, a great piece of uh, historical biography. And the second one uh, is uh, uh, rare and unique. So, um, just in beginning to move toward a close, what have I not asked you, what have we not discussed about John Fetzer that you would want to highlight as part of, a, uh, of this really wonderful conversation? Well, um, one of the, 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 the fun things, this kind of circles back to some of the things we were talking about when we began, was that... Um, one of the, the reasons I'm, I'm proud of this book is that um, as, it, uh, as it wound up, it not only gives a really rich insight into the spiritual development of John Fetzer, but for anybody who's interested in uh, metaphysical religions or esoteric religions in general, um, it actually serves as a kind of good primer, a way of getting into these traditions. Uh, because John Fetzer basically studied and was into so many different traditions. So if people are interested in metaphysical religions generally, uh, I would recommend the book just as a kind of entree into this just vast kind of spiritual universe of, of metaphysical traditions. And then the other thing that I found fascinating was that um, uh, I'm originally from California. I was born and raised in Santa Clara and spent you know, most of my childhood and early adulthood here and then went off to Kalamazoo, Michigan to take a job at Western Michigan University. And by that point, I uh, had my Ph.D. in religious studies and was going to become a professor uh, studying new religious movements. And I was a little bit trepidatious going to the Midwest because I had this vision of it being uh, almost monolithic in terms of its uh, uh, religious history. And over the years, I've been pleasantly, pleasantly surprised by just how diverse and interesting the place the Midwest turned out to be, including uh, the, the number of different metaphysical traditions that were either born here or thrived here or continue to thrive here. So the metaphysical Midwest was um, one of the, the kind of great things about going, coming to Kalamazoo uh, and discovering was that even before California became kind of the... Um, the, the, the hotbed of new religious movements and especially metaphysical movements, a lot of these traditions were already established in the Midwest. And in fact, a lot of Midwesterners migrated to California, and that's how those traditions wound up there. So I think that's another fascinating kind of uh, aspect of the book, is that I highlight the, the role of the Midwest as a, a place of spiritual innovation. Yeah, that's fascinating. By the way, the metaphysical Midwest would be a great title for an essay. Well, one of the things I would like to do, I'm putting together, I have these long-term projects, um, is a kind of general history of the metaphysical Midwest, um, beginning with uh, figures like um, John Chapman, who, of course, we know as Johnny Appleseed. And as a kid growing up, of course, we always were told about this wonderful philanthropist who came by and, and gave people apple seeds. But we weren't told that the real reason he was doing that was that he was a Swedenborgian missionary. I didn't know pamphlets. that. I yeah. didn't know that. 
So there's a whole kind of hidden history of, of metaphysical traditions in the Midwest, and I'd like to go back starting in the 19th century and write a, a comprehensive um, overview of the development of metaphysical traditions from the 19th to the 21st century. I think that's a wonderful project, just wonderful. And by the way, that fits with what we were saying about the tragedy of the fact that so many uh, you know, uh, people in the uh, New Age Buddhist uh, dispensation, not just Buddhist, but you know, progressive uh, Buddhist or secular dispensations look down at uh, people who've had an experience of the Christ as a as a lesser, um, you know, as a lesser manifestation. It's also true, obviously, that people look down on the the middle of the country from the coast, and it's such a tragedy. I mean, it is such a tragedy that. Um, and, and ex- explains so much of the pathology of our politics. People don't do well if you look down on them. If you look down on Christians, if you look down on the middle of the country, what do you expect, you know? Yeah. And so um, it just the recovery of the, uh, the great tradition of Christianity in the United States, the recovery of the... Um, importance and uh, power and beauty of uh, the Midwest. These are great themes if we want any kind of decent future for this country. You know, I hadn't really kind of thought in those kind of national terms, but I think you're exactly right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Anything else that we've missed? It's been such a rich conversation, but I just want to make sure we're not missing one last piece that you'd like to mention. No, I think we've, we've pretty well covered most of it, most of the themes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I want to recommend your book, Brian Wilson, John E. Fetzer, and the Quest for the New Age. Uh, it is an extraordinary biography of a very remarkable man. Um, and um, I, uh, I think it's wonderful. I look forward to looking at your book on uh, Kellogg. I hope you write your book on Emerson, and I hope you uh, write uh, a history of the metaphysical Midwest. I think you're making a, just a very wonderful contribution, and I admire your work. So thank you for being with us at the New School at Commonweal. It's been a wonderful and rich conversation, and I'm very grateful. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you. You've been listening to a TNS Conversation with Brian Wilson and host Michael Lerner. Thank you for listening to TNS, the new school at Commonweal. The new school at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Ciani. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, and Vimeo. Thanks for listening.